Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 500 for the 3rd of July, 2016. This week, how secure is your Wi-Fi router? You're probably not running a completely open router, but there may still be ways to improve it. The podcast is now 10 years old, 500 episodes, and TechBiter, formerly Technology Corner, has been around for 30 years. I can't help but look back a bit. In short circuits, Windows 10's Anniversary Edition will be available on August 2nd, and if you want to get it without charge, you need to upgrade to Windows 10 no later than July 29th. But one person who didn't want Windows 10 has now won a lawsuit against Microsoft. Now you can stuff 4 terabytes of data onto a pocket-sized hard drive. In spare parts, only on the website, Virtual reality comes to healthcare as a pain management tool and some tips on how to avoid being the next victim of a data breach. So who's there on your Wi-Fi router? Ideally, the answer to that question would be nobody but the people I know about. But how sure are you that that's the case? If you're using appropriate security precautions, you can be relatively sure. So let's take a look at some security precautions and how you can verify that your Wi-Fi router is secure. Not all that long ago, I could view Wi-Fi signals in my neighborhood and see that some were open, others were protected with the wired equivalent protocol, WEP, which is only slightly better than being unprotected, Now, every signal in my neighborhood is protected by at least the Wi-Fi Protected Access, WPA, and most have the improved WPA2. That's a good start. The second part is ensuring that the passphrase is complex and hard to guess. I have a private network. I call it FBI underscore surveillance underscore 4267, and I have a guest network called Snowden. Both the private network and the guest network have passphrases that are unknown to anyone but me. Creating a passphrase like BlinNet would be bad. Password, or let me in, would be even worse. Your router will have a configuration function. All too often these are configured with the user admin and the password, password. How clever. Needless to say, you should change at least the password. Some routers allow the user to change the administrator's username. Most don't. As long as you at least have a strong password, it really doesn't matter. If your router offers the option to set up a guest network, you might be able to allow guests to see each other and to see your private network. I can think of few reasons that I would ever want to enable that function. And if I enabled it, I would expect to disable it as soon as any guests no longer needed to see my network or other guests. Your router should also provide the option to see what devices are connected to it. 
You'll see an example image on the TechBinder Worldwide website. It's what I found one Sunday morning. The desktop computer has a wired connection, as does the printer. The router runs both 2.4 gigabit and 5 gigabit signals. My notebook computer and my wife's were both connected on the 2.4 gigabyte side. Two Android devices connected on the 5 gigabyte side. Nothing unexpected there. That's good. So who's really at risk? Well, unless you live in a commercial area or in an area with high-density housing, I'm thinking New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, the risk is minimal. But consider this. In 2011, a man was arrested on child pornography charges. As authorities later determined, the man's Wi-Fi router allowed a neighbor to use it. The police sorted it out and found the guilty party, but the incident was certainly inconvenient at the very least. Your router can broadcast its name, mine does, but it doesn't identify who it belongs to. Of course, you now know that it's FBI Surveillance 4267, or Snowden, but unless you're sitting outside my house, it doesn't matter. And even if you are sitting outside my house, you don't know the passphrase. It is possible to turn off the Service Set Identifier broadcast. Service Set Identifier is SSID. As long as you know the SSID for your router so that you can connect to it, there's no need to broadcast it. Your router will have an option called something like Enable SSID Broadcast, and if you want, you can turn that off. I leave mine on. At the very least, though, even if you live in a low-density suburban neighborhood, I think you ought to do these things. First, change the router's administrator name, if possible. It's probably not possible because most router manufacturers, at least in the consumer market, seem to have hard-coded that to admin. Second, change the router's admin password. This should always be an option with every router. If it's not, return the router for a refund. Make the password long, strong, and memorable. Third, choose the highest level of security that your router supports. If it supports only WEP or WPA, consider returning it or buying a new one. WPA is the minimum accepted protocol, and be sure to make the passphrase really long and complex if that's what you have. Turn off remote administration. That's point number four. Some routers have this feature enabled by default, although today most seem to arrive with it disabled. Also, it's a good idea to look for a setting that allows the router to respond to a ping request from the WAN, the Wide Area Network, also known as the Internet, and turn that off. And finally, Universal Plug and Play makes it easier for network devices to discover the router. It also makes it easier for creeps to discover the router. Depending on your ability to figure out how to connect a new device to the router and your level of paranoia, you might want to disable that. For a review of your router's security, consider visiting the Shields Up section of Steve Gibson's website. There's a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see a screenshot on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week from Gibson's site. That's just one of the features Gibson provides. Check the Security and Utilities sections under Freeware on the menu. The Wi-Fi router is intended to provide useful services for you and to keep others away. A few simple security measures will ensure that it works just the way it's supposed to.
pretty old here. Today's podcast is number 500 in a series that began in 2006, but the program is quite a few years older than that. In the mid-1980s, I joined Joe Brantley occasionally on Sunday mornings for a short section on technology on WTVN Radio. Eventually, it grew from 15 minutes to an hour and continued until 2006. On radio, an hour is about 17 to 20 minutes after you subtract the time taken for commercials, news, sports, weather, jingles, and bumper music. So now you understand why I say the program has about an hour's worth of news in 20 minutes. You know, in some ways, all this is kind of scary. I've been yammering about technology on radio and elsewhere for more than 30 years. The Technology Corner TechBiter Worldwide website has been on the web for more than 20 years. And this is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, number 500. For the past 10 years, the podcast has been 17 to 20 minutes every week. Occasionally, it's shorter. Sometimes it's longer. So pardon me while we take a couple of minutes to let me gaze at my own navel. And check out the TechBiter Worldwide website for some historical images. Going back to January 4th, 1998, although I believe I started posting information on the web in about 1996, the earliest proof I can find is 1998. The technology was primitive then. How primitive? Well, consider my lead article back then. It's how to acquire weather forecasts on your computer. I said, a programmer in British Columbia has made it easy for me to keep an eye on the weather, particularly when I'm at the office where my computer has a continuous connection to the Internet. That continuous connection, by the way, was a 56K modem. It was shared with about 50 other people in the office. Moving forward to January 2nd, 2000, remember Y2K? Was it a hoax, or was there a real concern? Some people thought that it was a plot by IT companies to revive dying mainframe programming languages and suck up cash from gullible corporate IT managers. Companies certainly did everything they could to create sales based on the concerns, so a lot of old gear was scrapped, and nothing happened. By 2000, I had decided to see if I could improve the looks of the site a bit by using tables for formatting, Remember how narrow screens were in those days? The next image is from January 6th, 2002. One of the big stories in 2002 was still PC Expo in New York City, but it was the last year for the event. The 2001 terrorist attacks and the collapse of technology startups did it in. The show, which at one time filled every possible space in the Javits Convention Center, no longer even filled the main floor. Rebranded as TechX New York, it faded into oblivion by 2003. In 2004, I was amazed by screen resolution. I wrote, a picture is worth 1,920,000 pixels. That's how many pixels are on my screen at the office because I run the monitor at a resolution of 1,600 by 1,200. At home, it's a mere 1,310,720 pixels because I run that screen at 1280 by 1024. Remember when 640 by 480, 307,200 pixels, was called high resolution? Well, today I'm sitting in front of two monitors, each 1900 by 1080. The Surface Pro 4 tablet has a 2,736 by 1,824 pixel screen 
and the MacBook Pro checks in at 2560 by 1600. Instead of screens with resolution of just 100 pixels per inch or so, we are now approaching 300 pixels per inch on a screen. In 2006, the color combination changed on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I liked it, I remember liking it, but for some reason I kept it for only a year. Back then, thumb drives were continuing to get larger. When I got my first thumb drive, it was an amazing 16 megabytes for 50 bucks. That year, I had bought a huge 2 gigabyte Kingston device for less than $50. Today, you'll find 256 gigabyte thumb drives, 128 times larger than the one I bought in 2006, for a little less than double the price. 2006 was also the last year Technology Corner was on WTVN, and around mid-year, it became a podcast. In 2007, the program became TechBiter Worldwide, and in 2007, I visited Apple's flagship store in New York City, located just south of Central Park at 59th Street. The store was, and still is, amazing. In July, one of the world's biggest spammers was taken out of operation, and mainstream media cheerfully announced the end of the menace of spam. Well, as usual, they were wrong. In 2008, TechBiter Worldwide took the first hesitant steps toward modern site design using CSS instead of tables. The third and final service pack for Windows XP was released that year, and the same people who today are saying that Windows XP was the best operating system Microsoft ever created were, at that time, railing against Microsoft for its terrible, no-good Windows XP operating system. Some things just never change. In September of 2009, I asked if digital photography can be art, and then I answered my own rhetorical question with examples of plugins and standalone applications that allow users to modify their digital images. We have come a long way in digital photography since 2009. It seems that about once a year I discuss Ubuntu Linux. I did that in 2011, it happened in May, several months after the release of version 11.04, also known as the Nutty Narwhal. No matter what, then or now, Ubuntu has a loyal following. But it's a small group. In 2013, the site moved more toward modern HTML and CSS. By this time, the disaster that was XHTML had been abandoned, and HTML5 was racing ahead at full speed. Adobe had released Creative Cloud, and I was trying to figure out whether I liked the idea or not. Overall, I liked it then, I still like it now, but I hope that Adobe does eventually find a way to make a frozen-in-time version of the applications available so that those who retire, or for whatever reason are unable to maintain a full subscription, will still be able to use the applications as they had them. Then, in 2015, TechBiter Worldwide at last fully embraced HTML5 and CSS3. Well, almost entirely. The Adobe Flash audio player survived until the middle of this year, when I replaced it with a native HTML5 player that's compatible with both browsers and handheld devices. All right, enough of peering at my own navel. Let's move on here. <laughs>
In short circuits, a couple of Microsoft accounts caught my eye this week. The coming Windows 10 anniversary update and the going of some money from Microsoft to a person who did not want Windows 10. I wonder, will it be called Windows 10 10.1? Or would that be just a little too much like Apple? Apple has been running OS 10 for 16 years now. Whatever Microsoft calls it, the anniversary update will be released on August 2nd. In Microsoft's words, and I quote, we are committed to delivering continuous innovation to you, including features that bring Windows, Inc. and Cortana to the mainstream, a faster, more accessible, and more power-efficient Microsoft Edge browser, advanced security features for consumers and enterprise, new gaming experiences, and new tools for the modern classroom. Everyone running Windows 10 will get these new features for free. That last part is important, really important. If you haven't upgraded to Windows 10 by the end of July, actually July 29th, then when you do eventually upgrade, you will have to pay for it. What's new? Well, an improved Windows Hello allows users to unlock the computer and websites with their face. I've been using Hello on a Surface tablet, and I like the way it works. I look at the computer, and it logs me in. The Edge browser will support the technology, It's unclear, though, whether it'll work with all webcams or just a subset of them. Windows Defender is also being improved, and it'll be able to schedule periodic quick scans of the computer and provide notifications and summaries when the scans are complete and threats are found. Throughout the past year, Microsoft has rolled out a series of small updates. What we'll see in August should be a big one. But what if you don't want Windows 10? Not everybody does. And a California travel agent sued Microsoft, claiming that the company had pushed Windows 10 onto her computer. The court agreed and ordered Microsoft to pay $10,000. That should be enough to buy at least a couple of brand new computers with Windows 10. Microsoft won't appeal the verdict for at least two reasons. First, $10,000 may seem like a lot to you or to me, but it probably pays the corporate legal team's salary for about two minutes. It's not much money to Microsoft. Second, it's unlikely to start a trend. Most people who have upgraded computers to Windows 10 or who have bought new computers with Windows 10 installed like it. Even a fair number of techies show at least some grudging respect for what Microsoft has accomplished. So appealing clearly would cost more than it's worth, and there's no need to forestall a revolt. There is no revolt. Oh, and there's the publicity angle, too. If big, bad old Microsoft had taken the travel agent back to court and defeated her, as it certainly could have, it would definitely not be a good move. Tiny disk drives you can carry around in your pocket are getting bigger in terms of capacity. Western Digital now offers My Passport drives with up to four terabytes of capacity. The pocket-sized drives are popular with people who need to carry around huge amounts of data. The drives have USB 3 connections and come with the Western Digital backup program that includes cloud-ready Dropbox integration and 256-bit AES hardware encryption. 
My Passport Ultra 4TB portable hard drives have a three-year limited warranty. They're available right now. The suggested retail price is $160. My Passport for Mac and My Passport Ultra Metal 4TB hard drives will be available next quarter. Available right now in spare parts, but only on the website, virtual reality comes to healthcare as a pain management tool and some tips on how to avoid being the next victim of a data breach. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.